Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review for, for you. One uh, was released on, in theaters this week, and the other two were released on Netflix as Netflix originals. We'll start with theatrical release. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Halloween Kills, which is the second Halloween movie directed by David Gordon Green. And David Gordon Green has had an interesting track record as a director of various films of various genres. Sometimes he's directed slow, independent uh, burner films such as George Washington and other, there's one other one I saw that I really liked. It was called All the Real Girls. He's also directed goofy comedies like Pineapple Express and Your Highness. Pineapple Express was hilarious. Your Highness wasn't, but what can I say? And he also directed the last Halloween movie, which came out in 2018, which even though I've admired David Gordon Green's track record as a director through um, good films and bad, mostly good films, I wasn't particularly impressed with Halloween from three years ago. It was very cool that they brought Jamie Lee Curtis back for that Halloween movie. But again, my biggest problem with that Halloween film was retread. Mike, the character Michael Myers, who has scared generations of kids and some adults, came back and basically did the same thing that he's done for every other movie. Just walk around at a slow pace and kill people. In Halloween Kills, he does more or less the same thing. But they did have an interesting take on uh, uh, the saga of Michael Myers, albeit... The, the movie makers seem to forget that they live in a world where people have cell phones and are given alerts on their phone because it just seems like the characters in this movie do not seem to realize that there are other phones besides landline phones. Plus, they make really questionable decisions. Among them is that the home, the former home of Michael Myers in that fictional town in Illinois, which is presumably a suburb of Chicago, is still standing. And it's in this movie occupied by a gay couple by the name of Big John and Little John, played by Scott MacArthur and Michael McDonald, respectively, who seem to be okay and thrilled that they live in the former home of a serial killer who grew up there. And it's not exactly a place where you would, you would call a historical landmark. But again, not my biggest problem with the film, but my biggest problem actually was it had the potential to have Jamie Lee Curtis do something else besides run in terror. And even though she doesn't run in terror in this one, like she did in the 2018 Halloween, she had the potential to do more uh, reprising her role as Laurie Strode from the original 1978 film, but all she basically does is remain in her hospital room recovering from a knife wound. I should also say that Halloween Kills take, takes place almost Im actually immediately after the events of the 2018 Halloween movie, and by, the, uh, by immediately after, what I mean is the exact same night. 
I am reluctant to say exactly what happens in the beginning of this film, because if I tell you what happens at the beginning of this film, it's going to ruin the ending of the 2018 Halloween movie. But it might have seemed certain to the characters in that 2018 Halloween movie that Michael Myers did not survive the climactic ending of that. But we all know he probably does. What is astonishing about Halloween Kills is how Michael Myers survives that and how also government agents like the FBI aren't called in to apprehend a a very obvious homicidal maniac. Instead, you have police officers who are surprisingly really bad shots. Michael Myers doesn't seem to run from the cops, but he does seem to elusively disappear. But when he is right there in front of them, they fire off their guns, but it's unclear whether or not the bullets hit Michael Myers. And if they do, how does Michael Myers withstand the bullets? It's, it's a lot and it doesn't really all make particular sense or it all seems particularly contrived, but I do have to say on the bright side, when Michael Myers was going around killing people, anytime somebody was stabbed or shot or met some other gruesome fate, there wasn't a moment where I didn't flinch when that happened. So I got to give Halloween kills some credit for being suspenseful. But I don't know if I should knock this film for being particularly unrealistic, but it did seem like there were a few too many side characters. It seemed like the police in the film weren't doing enough, and they also seemed to be particularly out of place. For example, this film takes place in Illinois, and yet the chief of police wears a cowboy hat, which I don't think people or police officers in Illinois do. I get that it's Halloween night, but the the officer who's wearing a cowboy hat is wearing that in addition to just a a suit you'd normally see the chief of police wearing on, on any particular day or night. So I wasn't quite uh, getting that um, part here, but then again, it is a fictional town in Illinois. So I, I guess anything could happen. And I also thought that there was an officer by the name of Officer Hawkins, who's played by Will Patton, and you learn his backstory, which actually I thought was one of the stronger parts of the film, where as a young police officer, he's played by Thomas Mann, and you see how the original, um, his original altercation with Michael Myers has (laughs) made him who he is, and he's also injured very badly in this film so much that he has many uh, will Patton has many scenes to share with Jamie Lee Curtis in a hospital room. I, as you can tell from my describing this film, I do have mixed feelings about it. I think in terms of being a scary movie, it succeeds. I appreciate the fact that it didn't turn Michael Myers into a comic villain the same way that eventually as the incantations of the Nightmare on Elm Street films and the Friday the 13th films did, that Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees, respectively, became more and more comical. Granted, they weren't played by comedians or didn't make any goofy faces, but the the novelty of their 
terror was wearing off. And I do think that Michael Myers here, as he's portrayed by Nick Castle, who's credited as The Shape, as well as James Jude Courtney, I guess they took turns here, um, they were able to make Michael Myers still scary. And as I said, every time Michael Myers stalked and killed his prey, no matter who it was, I did flinch. And there were other moments where there were funny moments that I thought were appropriately funny. For example, there's one scene where a woman is coming out of a bar and she gets into her car and she finds that Jason Voorhees, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers is in the back seat. And of course she reacts as anybody would react. And she panically, she in a, in a panic tells her husband, uh, he's in the back of the car, go look. And he of course says an equal panic. Why would I go look? That part I thought was was good. I think anybody could find themselves in that sort of situation. Either they're pressed to look when they really don't want to, or they're just so traumatized that they don't think particularly clearly. And there was another uh, very interesting character I liked um, by the name of Tommy Doyle, who's played by Anthony Michael Hall, who is a macho man. And it's actually surprising to see Anthony Michael Hall now compared to his teenage Brat Pack years in movies like 16 Candles and Weird Science. He's bulked up a lot, even more so than he did in Edward Scissorhands. And he does actually play the part of a of an angry townie who takes the law into his own hands very well. And I, I think his actions and reactions are understandable, especially given how bad a shot the police officers in this town in Illinois are. And granted, it is a fictional town in Illinois. You don't exactly know where it's located in the state. It could be a suburb of Chicago. It could be a suburb of Springfield. Probably Springfield, because I think that in Chicago, the Chicago police officers know how to handle a gun. And that says a lot, considering how rampant the city of Chicago is with gun violence these days. So Halloween Kills is retread, but I did like it a little bit better, actually quite a bit better than the 2018 Halloween movie. I thought that that movie from three years ago was a lot more retread than this one. But as I'm watching Halloween kills and the kills are making me flinch, I am still wondering why the hell nobody has called the FBI or the SWAT team to take down what is obviously a homicidal maniac. But then again, I am not an expert on um, law enforcement, and I know that there is a reason that Michael Myers eludes bullets and basically anything that could take a mortal human being down, because he is the boogeyman. (laughs) And he's referred to as the boogeyman several times in this film, which I don't think he ever was in the original 1978 Halloween film, but he might as well have been. But Halloween Kills gets my rating of a checkout because I think as an effective Halloween movie, and by Halloween I mean one that people can watch during the Halloween season in October, I think it does work. I think it is worth seeing on the big screen to get some thrills. And I do think that it is an improvement over the 2018 Halloween movie, in addition to the fact that its name, Halloween Kills, is quite original, which is a lot more originality than director David Gordon Green and whoever produced the original, the Halloween movie from 2018 gave to 
its title. And I've, I've mentioned before how I really don't like how some sequels have the exact same name of the original, but Halloween kills, I think is good. If you're looking for thrills, if you're looking for a story, if you're looking for realism, you might be disappointed, but I'm still giving it a marginal recommendation because it is a fun film to watch during the Halloween season. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next film I'm going to be reviewing for you is a Netflix original that is called, in English, The Forgotten Battle. Its original title, which is in Dutch, is De Slag om de Schleld. And it is directed by Matthias van Heijeningen Jr. I hope I pronounced that name right. Um, hopefully to you Western audiences, that sounds accurate enough, but this is the first feature length film for Heidegen Jr. Um, that he has ever directed. He's directed before this, a series of short films and a few commercials, one of which starred Pierce Brosnan. But this movie, which I'll call in its English title, the forgotten battle is about the battle of the Scheldt. And this was a series of military operations that took place in northern Belgium and the province of Zeeland in the southwest of Holland, which we know today as the Netherlands, in the autumn of 1944. And this takes place after the liberation of the port of Antwerp, where Allied forces, and by Allied forces I mean forces from uh, Britain, Canada, and the Netherlands itself, that... Um, are tasked with clearing the occupying Germans from the Scheldt estuary to open the supply lines to the Allied front. Why is this a forgotten battle? Well, mainly because it wasn't seen, at least by historical standard, as a turning point for the Allied forces, not as much as the um, uh, D-Day, um, which took place on June 6, 1944, um, on in France, um, and th- this movie actually does a really good job in the very beginning showing a map which showed how much of Western Europe the uh, the Axis powers, particularly Nazi Germany, had up to D-Day on June sixth, nineteen forty four. Uh, but once the American and British troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, France. Eventually, the Allied powers moved back, and that was considered a turning point of the war. But in October of 1944, where this movie takes place, we can obviously see that World War II was far from over. And this movie details the trials and tribulations of a British glider pilot particularly one named William Sinclair, who's played by Jamie Flatters, a Dutch boy fighting on the German side, who is played by uh, Gies Bloom, and a Dutch female resistance member 
who is played by Susan Ratter, all end up involved in the Battle of the Scheldt, but it's not together. They Their choices differ, but their goal is the same, which is freedom. And I could go a lot more into the history of the Battle of the Scheldt, but I'll just describe to you how this story works with three major characters and their motivations. And honestly, it's been a while since we've seen a war movie where there are three different stories that are being told at the same time and about these characters' different effects on the major battle that's taking place. But I think this movie did a great job weaving in the stories of these three characters, in addition to the fact that it makes war look like hell, just like any great war movie does. And I would compare this movie very favorably to other great war movies, not necessarily World War II movies, but also World War II movies that have come out over the last 25 years or so, or within the last 25 years. I think stylistically, it's very easy to compare to movies like Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan or Roman Polanski's The Pianist. And it's also very easy, or rather, the cinematography is similar, at least in tone, to Sam Mendes's 1917. It does not do the cinematography technique that 1917 does, where it takes place on seemingly one shot throughout the movie. That, I think, would be very ambitious. And also, when you're telling stories about three different characters who do their own fighting, own type of fighting in World War II, it would be nearly impossible. But I was invested in all three of the characters. I was invested in the battle that was going on. And I I should also mention... I would probably compare this best, I favorably comparison, by the way, to Dunkirk, which was directed by Christopher Nolan and should have won Best Picture when it was released, or rather, when it was nominated back in 2018. But I really can't do that. I think The Forgotten Battle is probably one of the best World War II films that we've seen from... um, a European director in quite some time. I would probably say the best film from a European director that I've seen that takes place in Europe is Downfall. But Downfall is a bit different because it details the the fall of Adolf Hitler in his bunker at the very end of World War II. But I am making favorable comparisons to all these great World War II films that have come out within the last 25 years, including but not limited to Downfall, Saving Private Ryan, Dunkirk, and the list goes on. But I was very impressed with the Forgotten Battle. It's obvious that this took a lot of time and energy, as well as the weaving of three different stories in here that I think all take take precedence very well. And if you hadn't learned about the Battle of the Scheldt in school, this movie will fill in the details for you. Not only how much of a hellish battle it was on land, on sea, and in air, but also the significance of the battle, which does not undermine the significance of the Battle of Normandy by any stretch of the imagination, but it does 
show how there were other battles in World War II that were just as important and how World War II was the first war that was actually fought in three different areas, not just on land or on sea. I was very impressed with The Forgotten Battle. I think it is a great World War II film. And it gets my rating of a knockout. The acting by just about everyone involved, whether they are Dutch or English, is excellent. I loved the performances of Jeez Bloom, Jamie Flatters, Susan Ratter, Jan Bivot, Tom Felton, and other such actors in this film. I think everyone did a great job. And in addition to the fact that this the set design was amazing and the battle scenes themselves, regardless of what the battle was on, land, sea, or air, looked like hell. And any great World War II movie makes war look like hell. And this is just one of the reasons why The Forgotten Battle is one of the best World War II movies I've seen. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is another Netflix film, a Netflix original film, that is, that is called The Trip. This is a film that is a Norwegian film that is directed by Tommy Workola. And while that name might not sound familiar to Western audiences, you definitely know the woman in this film, who is a Norwegian actor by the name of Nomi Rapace. And Nomi Rapace has been in a lot of English-speaking films, for sure. Uh, She was in the Sherlock Holmes movies with Robert Downey Jr., but she is best known to international audiences for having acted in the adaptations of the Stig Larsson novels like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Plays the Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet Nest. And the American remake of that, starring Rooney Mara and Daniel Craig, did receive some good critical feedback, but not nearly as good as the original Stig Larsson adaptations. But the trip is more like an action comedy, which is interesting because Nomi Rapace is not exactly known for being funny, but it's not that she's funny and that she makes funny faces. It's that she plays it straight throughout this film, yet the circumstances are actually very funny. The Trip is a movie about a dysfunctional couple. One is an actress and the other is a director of a popular soap opera in uh, Oslo, Norway. And the two of them are a couple for some reason. I say for some reason because it is very weird to realize, A, why they're going on this trip together, and B, why they are still a couple. But they head to a remote cabin to reconnect, but each unbeknownst to the other one, has the intentions to kill the other. So it's kind of like Mr. and Mrs. Smith in this regard. But before they can carry out their plans, unexpected visitors arrive and they are faced with a greater danger. So I just kind of gave away the premise 
of the film, but it is actually, I think, a better paced um, movie than Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I should say. The movie with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Uh, Because these two apparently really hate each other, and you don't exactly... You you can surmise as to why, but what you can't surmise is why they're together. But if they weren't together and they weren't trying to kill each other, well, you wouldn't exactly have so much of a movie. But I did like the dynamic between the actress Lisa, who's played by uh, Numi Rapace, and Lars, her boyfriend, who's played by Axel Henny. I think the two of them uh, work very well together. They don't exactly have many romantic times together, but they certainly have ways of torturing one another that is actually, I think, like an adult Looney Tunes cartoon. It actually reminds me of the cartoon, the Looney Tunes cartoon of uh, Sam and Ralph, where Sam is a wolf who looks a lot like Wile E. Coyote, but isn't, and Ralph is the sheepdog, and the, and the two of them basically make a day out of trying to hurt each other. And then when the day ends, they literally clock out and shake hands afterwards. That kind of ending is not the same as the trip, but it is very similar in theme where these two hate each other, are trying to kill each other, but they also have an interesting amount of respect for one another. In addition to the fact that the unexpected visitors who arrive are all kind of woven into the plot in the very beginning of the film. And there are several flashbacks that bring you back to these scenes, but the scenes don't feel like retread. It's one of those things where you are venturing into undiscovered territory. And once you do what happens later in the film makes a lot of sense. But even though Numira Pace and Haxel Henny do a great job playing it straight, I think their circumstances and the way they try to elaborately kill one another is very funny. In addition to some of the lesser action scenes that happen on, in other words, the more mundane scenes where they're hanging around this remote cabin. And by the way, for a remote cabin, it's actually quite nice. It's not a log cabin or anything. It looks like a house with insulation and indoor plumbing, but I guess... In a country like Norway, it would be considered a cabin. In America, and maybe some uh, some rich and some poor countries, especially poor countries, it would be considered a lakeside retreat. <laughs> but in the context of this film, it does work. But the more mundane parts where they're doing things like hanging out or playing Scrabble, for example actually have some very funny moments that you wouldn't expect. So The Trip is a movie that I did not expect to be as funny as it was. In fact, going into it, I know that Nomi Rapace has been in a lot of very dark, serious movies, and this movie is certainly a very dark comedy, but it also happens to be hilarious, which is why I give the movie The Trip my rating of a knockout. I do think it is a very fun film. And for those Western audiences who might not be tolerant of reading the bottom of the screen to understand what these people are speaking, mainly in Norwegian with some Swedish mixed in, 
I think the pace of the film, as well as the circumstances of this actress and this director who are a couple and who really shouldn't be, are going to make up for how often you read at the bottom of the screen. But I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was very funny. I thought it was very well acted. And I don't think that any other kinds of tones would have worked for this film. I think if it was a a flat-out comedy or one of those goofball comedies, it wouldn't work nearly as well in terms of being funny. And if it was darker... I think the comedy would have been completely absent from the film. For example, one similar themed, or rather one film that was similar in plot for a a husband and wife who are going out to a remote cabin in the woods is similar in plot to the 2009 movie Antichrist directed by Lars von Trier. But that is a much, much, much darker film. It's not about a couple who want to kill each other. It's about a couple who are becoming engrossed in their own psychosis and grief. This movie isn't nearly as heavy, but I do think if they did not have the plot twist that they had, as well as some of the shocking ways that these two tried to kill one another, I I think one deviation from this kind of farce might have brought the film in another unwelcome direction, but the trip works in the action comedy balance that it has. And it's one of the better action comedy films that I've seen in quite some time, but it works in being a dark comedy. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. I have reviewed all the films that I have to review for you for this show. The unfortunate part about this is, though, that there was one film that was released theatrically that I really, really wanted to review for you, but I did not get the chance because I just did not have enough time this week to go to the movies. That film was The Last Duel, which stars Matt Damon, Adam Driver, and Ben Affleck. There's also a woman, uh, Jamie Hedder, who is also in the film. And I really wanted to see that for the show, but I did not get the chance. But I will attempt to review that film for you next week. However, now that I've reviewed all the films that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment of the show, which is What's Coming Up Next?, This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters and or on streaming, depending on uh, the studio that releases it, that you can find in theater. Well, first, I'm going to I'm going to 
review for you, or rather give you a spoken word preview of the movies that are going to be or subject to be released in theaters. And there are a number of films that are subject to be released in theaters. The first one is Dune. Dune is based directly on the groundbreaking science fiction novel by Frank Herbert. And I will probably get into more of the climactic or rather cataclysmic issues that Hollywood has had adapting Dune into a movie on next week's show. But then again, I might not do that because it might take away from my review of the film. But I'm going to tell you this. Dune is a 750-page novel, at least in paperback, that I want to read. I have started reading it, but I'm not even close to finishing it. I want to finish that book before I see the movie because I do think it's very important, particularly when a movie is based on a famous book, for people to read the book first before seeing the movie. But it is a double-edged sword because... A lot of times, in fact, most of the time, the novel is better than the movie, and the movie doesn't do justice to the pictures in your head. However, this movie, uh, 2021's Dune, which is directed by Denis Villeneuve, is a very promising adaptation of Dune. More promising, I would say, than David Lynch's infamous uh, movie Dune, which has developed a cult following over the years, but even in the, even in the realms of nostalgia, the 1984 movie Dune is a very, very messy film. And you can certainly understand why it made critics top 10 worst lists back in 1984. What's amazing is that David Lynch was offered the chance to direct Star Wars Return of the Jedi by George Lucas himself. He turned it down in order to do Dune. And Return of the Jedi is indeed a much better film than Dune. Then again, Dune was starting a franchise from movie scratch, basically. Uh So I got to give David Lynch a lot of credit, A, for turning down what would have been, I think, a shoo-in opportunity in order to direct the movie Dune and start that film from scratch. It didn't end up getting the legacy in terms of it getting sequels that it might have deserved, but I still got to give David Lynch a lot of credit for putting it out there. David Lynch is a director who has taken risks pretty much all throughout his career. Dune is unquestionably his biggest failure, but it didn't stop him from directing movies. Uh, actually, Inland Empire probably stopped him because he hasn't directed a film in literally 15 years since Inland Empire. But getting back to Dune here, I could go on and on about Dune. I could, I could probably dedicate a portion of next week's show to Dune's cataclysmic movie adaptations over the last couple of years. I really, really want to tell you about Alejandro Hodorowski's attempt to make a Dune film and how he's going to make it 12 to 14 hours long. He had a budget of $10 million, which was a lot more in the 1970s than it is now. And how it would have been awesome to have seen his visual adaptation of Dune, but 
We do have a great documentary that details not only hit, uh, Alejandro Hodorowski's vain attempt to make Dune into a movie, which ultimately did not succeed, but the influence of this movie that was never made onto other bigger films that literally took ideas that Alejandro Hodorowski had, put them in their movies, and literally made millions, if not billions, from the movies themselves and box office receipts. And that's not even including the uh, franchise royalties that they received. But that's another story for another time. Hodorowski's Dune is a great documentary that was not nominated for Best Documentary at the Oscars the year it came out. But it is a fascinating documentary and one I'd love to see again. But before I do that, let me tell you about this 2021 adaptation of Dune. First of all, it is not only coming out in theaters, it's also being streamed on HBO Max. And it is a feature adaptation, as I said, of Frank Herbert's science fiction novel about the son of a noble family entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and most vital element in the entire galaxy. This movie has an all-star cast, which includes, but is not limited to, Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Zendaya, and Oscar Isaac, amongst other people. And Oscar Isaac is actually pretty lucky because he has actually co-starred in two dynamic science fiction franchises. The first is, of course, the three sequels to the Star Wars trilogy, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and The Rise of Skywalker. And if if this Dune succeeds, which it has a very, very good chance of doing, Oscar Isaac is probably going to be seen in more Dune sequels. This is a movie that looks like it's going to be a franchise, but it all depends on how good this Dune movie is. I will say that I will see it. I will try. I will try to read the book before I see the film. I don't have a lot of time this week, but I will try, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's coming out in theaters, or is subject to be released in theaters, I should say, is one that is called The French Dispatch, and this is the latest film from Wes Anderson. It stars Leah Sadeau, Timothy Chalamet, again, Christoph Waltz, and Owen Wilson, amongst other people. And this movie is a love letter to journalists that's set in the outpost in an outpost, excuse me, of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings to life a collection of stories published in the French Dispatch magazine, which I believe is a fictional magazine. It would have to be because I believe that well, if the city, the French city is fictional, so is the magazine itself. I don't know where Wes Anderson comes up with a lot of his ideas, but he does have a formula that works for him. And he also has dozens of big stars, uh, both recent and of yesteryear, that come together and create a, a movie like this for him. So The French Dispatch is a movie that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters is an animated film that is called Ron's Gone Wrong. This is a movie that I've seen advertised um, 
when I went to the movies. And I don't watch movie previews, but I've seen the poster of this. So this is likely to come out on Friday, October 22nd. And it is the story of Barney, an awkward middle schooler, and Ron, his new walking, talking, digitally connected device. And Ron's malfunctions, set against the backdrop of the social media age, launch them on a journey to learn about true friendship. For a kid's film, that sounds like an amazing concept, because we all know kids these days, (laughs) I sound so old when I say that, but lots of kids have smartphones, lots of people are on Facebook and Instagram, and Facebook has come under fire over the last few weeks for knowing about spreading misinformation as well as become having a deleterious effect on kids and teenagers self-image and they've fallen into a lot of controversy because of that and controversy that's led all the way up to Washington DC so the trials and tribulations of Facebook are far from over but Ron's Gone Wrong seems in theme like a timely movie either that or it could be as bad as the emoji movie I don't know but I will see this and I will let you know what I think on next week's show Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters is one that's called Broadcast Signal Intrusion. This is a movie that takes place in the late 1990s, and it is about a video archivist who unearths a series of sinister pirate broadcasts and becomes obsessed with uncovering the dark conspiracy behind them. Now, this is very interesting because it takes place in the late 90s where we had the internet, but A, not a lot of people had access to the internet, B, a lot of people had access to the internet on dial-up, and C, broadcast, i.e. TV and radio, were a lot more influential back then than they are now. Granted, if you get on TV or on, on the radio, it's still a big deal, but the the broadcast industry is considered a bit more of a dinosaur now than it was um in the late 90s of course but this is yeah getting a little back to uh primitive analog uh broadcasting but this sounds like a very intriguing premise the movie by the way stars Harry Shum Jr, Kelly Mack, Chris Sullivan and Anthony E Cabral Actors who I have not actually heard of, and you probably haven't heard of them either, which means that this movie might be released in an art house cinema near you, but don't hold your breath and think that this movie's coming out in a multiplex near you. Not, It's not as guaranteed as Dune, The French Dispatch, or Ron's Gone Wrong, but if I see this movie, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show because it does sound fascinating. The last movie that is subject to be released in theaters on October 27th is a movie that's called Warning. This is a sci-fi thriller where the meaning of life is explored through multiple interconnected lives set in the near future. The movie stars Thomas Jane as a astronaut, as an astronaut, uh, Tomasz Cote, Tony Garn, and Rupert Everett. So some of these names I have heard of, obviously Thomas Jane, I've seen in several movies. Thomas Jane is a very good actor, not to mention he's very good looking, but he's not the household name that other people his age, like George Clooney or Brad Pitt, would be, even though he has the acting chops to match those other actors. But Warning is a film I may not see, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now, that covers the movies that are going to be released in theaters. Now, let me get into the movies that are subject to be released on such streaming platforms as Netflix. And I will start with Netflix right now. There are several documentaries, or rather, there are several films that are going to be premiering, not just on August, uh, October 22nd, but on the week of October 18th through October 22nd. On Wednesday, October 20th, for example, there's a documentary that may be feature length or it may be a documentary series. It's called Found. Be on the lookout for that. There is a film premiere of a Netflix original called Night Teeth. And there's another Netflix original that is called Stuck Together. And I unfortunately do not have very quick internet these days. So I'm just going to tell you what the movies are named. And I could go into presuming what they're about, but I honestly don't know. So Night Teeth, the internet is not telling me anything, not because the internet's down, because the internet is slow. I don't know exactly why it's slow now. It seems to work very well when I start my show, but around the time that my show ends, that's when it just starts biting the dust. But fortunately, I'm able to enter the web pages that I need to look up this information before going into later segments on the show. But anyway, on Thursday, October 21st, there's a documentary that's called Flip a Coin, One OK Rock. That's going to be premiering on Thursday, October 21st. I guess One OK Rock is a band. I don't exactly know why they're flipping a coin. I don't know that either. But that's what's premiering on Netflix on Thursday, October 21st. It may be a documentary. It may be a documentary series. I don't exactly know. But of the films that's that are going to be premiering on the uh, Netflix platform on Friday, October 22nd, there are two films. There are several series, but two films that I've been able to extrapolate from the list that I've been given. One is a movie that's called Little, Little Big Mouth, and the other one is called Maya and the Three. Um, they, they say that Maya and the Three is a family premiere. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but... If I see any of these films, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And rest assured, when I see the films, that pretty much guarantees that I will give you a much more elaborate plot synopsis than I gave you right now. So now that I've given you all the films that are premiering on Netflix, here's a list of movies that will be premiering on Amazon Prime. And from what I can see, there are no original films that are going to be premiering on Friday, October 22nd. The only film that will be making an appearance on Amazon Prime on Wednesday, October 20th, is a movie called The Walk, which is directed by Robert Zemeckis and stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Philippe Petit, who is the French tightrope walker who, in 1971 as the World Trade Center towers were being constructed, did the unthinkable by walking a tightrope from the North Tower to the South Tower over and over again. And he did some astonishing things um, that are detailed in the excellent 
Academy Award-winning documentary Man on Wire. But Robert Zemeckis uses his aptitude for special effects very well by showing Philippe Petit, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, walking the uh, tightrope and doing things that no sane human being should ever do. Not just walking back and forth several times, but also lying down on the damn tightrope. I was watching this film in the theaters, and I saw this in the equivalent to the IMAX theater in the Regal, which I I think it's called um, RPF. And I was watching this, and my palms were sweating during the scene. And I was shaking. I had to remind myself that I was on solid ground and not suspended up in the air on a very thin wire. Because there is no conceivable way I could even walk a tightrope over even a pond. You know? With the tightrope being six inches off the surface of the water. I would fall off. And I would be thankful that, yeah, I'd be wet, and that would be an inconvenience, but I would be thankful that I'd be on solid ground. So some people live for this, some people don't. But The Walk is going to be making an appearance on Amazon Prime via IMDb TV on Wednesday, October 20th, so check it out for yourself if you'd like. And also on Saturday, October 23rd, another Joseph Gordon-Levitt film that I have not seen called Don John is also appearing on IMDb TV. I've liked Joseph Gordon-Levitt in just about everything I've seen him in. I think he's an actor who makes overall very wise choices when it comes to movies. And Don John is a movie that I think he he used as a, a passion project. And he got a lot of big names in it, like Scarlett Johansson, for example, who co-stars as his girlfriend. And I think Tony Danza's in it, too. Um, which is kind of interesting, but so the walk is going to be premiering on Wednesday, October 20th on IMDb TV and Don John is on Saturday, October 23rd, also on IMDb TV. So moving on to Disney plus on Friday, October 22nd, there are no, uh, Disney plus original films that are going to be premiering Disney plus I think is focused a lot more on original series than there are original movies. And there's nothing wrong with that. After all, lots of people watch TV series. In fact, there are more series out there than any human being could watch in their lifetime. And of course, we all need to have a life. But on Friday, October 22nd, there are two films that are going to be appearing on Disney+. Plus. The first one is Rookie of the Year, which is not a Disney film, actually, but it is a, a 20th Century Fox release, or it was back in 1993 when it came out that summer. And it's the story about uh, a 12-year-old who's played by Thomas Ian Nicholas, who breaks his arm, but then finds when his arm heals that he has the pitching power of a professional major league pitcher. And he joins the roster of the Chicago Cubs, whose World Series chances were next to nil, even back in 1993. And the the Chicago Cubs have come a long way. And I got to give credit to people who are fans of the Cubs, because 
they went literally 108 years without ever winning a World Series. And they went 60, uh, 73 years without making it to the World Series. So at the time, at, since, or rather, going back to 1993, the Chicago Cubs had not won, had not made it to the World Series since 1945, hadn't won a World Series since 1908. They did win in 2016, and I'm not a Chicago fan, but I was rooting for them all the way because they had a couple of close calls, including when they lost the NLCS in 2003. And I really wanted to see them make it to the World Series, not the Florida Marlins. But then again, the Florida Marlins did make it to the World Series and beat the New York Yankees that year. So for that, I am internally happy. But I went on a different tangent. Rookie of the Year will be premiering on Disney Plus on Friday, October 22nd. Also premiering on Disney Plus is the animated Thumbelina, which was also released by 20th Century Fox. This was not a Disney film, but it was animated by Don Bluth, who is a former Disney animator who's worked on uh, various uh, Disney shorts and series. One of his uh, most famous Disney shorts that he worked on was one called The Small One, which was a Christmas-themed Disney short, which I really liked. That came out in the early 80s. He also worked on The Fox and the Hound before going off into his own studio and making such revered um, animated films like The Secret of Nim and The Land Before Time. Oh, not to mention An an American Tale. And then after he did All Dogs Go to Heaven, his filmography kind of went downhill in quality. I have not seen Thumbelina, but it was obviously very much based on uh, the Disney formula. And I don't entirely blame him for kind of copying from that, but it's not seen as one of the more original films. But it's kind of ironic that Disney would purchase 20th Century Fox and vicariously also purchase Thumbelina. So you'll be able to see it for yourself on Friday, uh, October 27th, uh, 22nd on Disney+. Plus. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.